Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hey, Hellions. Just a note before we start. This interview with Laura Love Harden about her beautiful new memoir contains discussions of addiction and abuse. If those topics are hard for you, or if you have little ones around, we just wanted to give you a heads up. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Fresh Takes from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Amy. Today, I'm talking to Laura Love Harden. She is a literary agent, an author, a mother of four, and stepmother of two. She is a four-time New York Times bestselling collaborative writer, including the number one New York Times bestseller, Designing Your Life. Love Harden lives in La Selva Beach, California, with her husband, Sam. Her new memoir is The Many Lives of Mama Love, a memoir of lying, stealing, writing, and healing. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. Your story is Incredible. So let's start. Please tell our listeners a little bit about your story and some of what this memoir is about. So the story of my journey from soccer mom in the suburbs to opiate addict to shot caller in jail, which is like, for those who don't know what that is, it's like being president of the PTA, right? (laughs) That's a shot caller in jail. To spending a year in the in the Santa Cruz County Jail away from all of my family, my children, and then having to rebuild my life afterwards and re-enter and and then a journey through rediscovering my love of books and reading and writing and rebuilding. So it's a crazy story. It's an incredible arc of redemption, and you make some really important points about redemption and what that means and who gets to have it, right? And who we think should be allowed to have it. And I definitely want to get to that. But let's start where the book begins. You have a great life. You're living in a beautiful home in a cul-de-sac in a lovely town in California, living like the full soccer mom life, at least from the outside. It's a cul-de-sac of two-story houses. I have you know, all four children, two stepchildren living with me. Everybody's in private school. I'm driving carpool. I am, you know, going to AAU basketball games and, you know, all of the sports with my older boys. And I'm keeping a secret that I'm actually pretending and I'm struggling with addiction to pain medication at first. And by the time that you're arrested, it's getting to the point where you are stealing from other parents in the community to continue to sort of fund the addiction and live moment to moment. Yeah. So after about uh, close to a year of active out-of-control addiction, and addiction is progressive and it gets worse and worse, and so the, the lying and stealing part of the subtitle, I would you know, go into the other mom's purses at drop-off. 
in the morning, for example, where no one locks their car and uh, stealing my neighbor's checkbook to write a check at the grocery store. So everything when the book starts is coming to a chaotic, you know, I basically can't hide it anymore. And I've run out of places to run. You know, I kept saying, I'm going to fix everything tomorrow. I'll get everything together. I'll stop doing this, you know. And I thought at the time, like, I cannot ask for help. I cannot tell anyone I'm struggling with addiction. I was so ashamed of that. But also I thought, ironically, there's no way I could ever spend 30 days away from my children and go to rehab. Right. Right? Like unfathomable. Like how would they ever manage for 30 days without me? And so, you know, like there's a lot of craziness in addiction where you, you know, you you think you're holding it together and you're making up stories and you're desperately guarding that secret. So the book starts in that crazy time and with the sheriff's office pounding on my door and coming in and arresting me. You make such interesting points about addiction. I'd never thought of it from the point of view of being a mom in this experience and how for you being a mom, I mean, it kind of, I guess when your addiction can take over everything. So being a mom became part of what enabled you in a way, like I'm doing all of this for my kids, right? I'm holding this together for my kids. Look what a good job I'm doing. Yeah. Instead of it getting in the way, it's like, right. And look what a perfect mom I'm being. Right. And you were like, it isn't like you were like, no, you were doing these things. It wasn't you weren't doing them. You were doing them. But it sort of allows you to think, but I'm a perfect mom, which means I can't also be somebody who needs help. Right. I can't ask for help. I can't admit I'm unhappy or depressed, you know, or self-medicated or any of the things, you know. And growing up, I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up in that emotional language where people were like, how was your day? How are you feeling? I just didn't have that. So that sort of, I can do it all and I don't need anyone and I'm perfectly fine. It was just my default mode. You talk in the book about your own childhood and you say like, you didn't really have something, your own experience of home as a child was very vague. It wasn't concrete or symbolic. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of blocked memories from childhood. You know, there's a lot of addiction, alcoholism in my family, a lot of chaos and violence. And I retreated into books. That's kind of was my coping strategy from a very early, early age. And, you know, and as soon as I graduated high school, I went as far away from home as I could and sort of, I thought I could out-educate myself from sort of my family of origin, right? Like I say in the book, like I thought education meant inoculation. Like I could do well in school, I can go to college, I can go to graduate school. You know, I was the first one in my family to go to college and graduate school. I can do all of that and I can, you know, run faster than either my genetic predisposition or my coping skills or, you know, I didn't, you know, it wasn't that well thought out. You know, it's always easy, certainly when you're doing memoir to look back and see the threads and the patterns, but the time you're just surviving. And I think I was in survival mode, you know, as a mom from being a mom, you know, I had my first three boys in four and a half years, right? So, but also just in survival mode in life, like, you know, I'm just going to willpower my way through things. I'm going to pretend everything is okay. And eventually that catches up to you. It caught up to me. So let's talk about the day that you were arrested. Your three-year-old son was home with you and there's a pounding on the door. Yeah. So my son, Caden, was is my youngest. He was about a month away, a little over a month away from turning four. And that matters actually to the story. But he was home. My other boys were all in school and my stepchildren were all in school. And, you know, I just set him up back then. So this is, you know, 2008, 2009. And the big show that he would watch is this show called Wonder Pets. I don't even know if that. Yes. I'm very familiar. <laughs> I don't know if people know that show, you know, and it's like the animals are in trouble and they're rescuing each other. So I just like set him up and he had all his stuffed animals around him and um, the sheriff's pounded on the door and basically, you know, I couldn't, 
you know, the gig was up, right? Like it was kind of over for me. And I was begging them to let me call someone, a family member to come get him um, because I was being arrested. And my husband at the time was also being arrested. So I say in the book, when you go from like husband and wife to co-defendants, the romance is kind of over, but, (laughs) but, you know, and I begged them and they wouldn't. And so they called Child Protective Services and um, they handcuffed me. My hands are handcuffed behind my back. And it, you know, this is the moment that for a decade just played in my head and in my dreams, you know, and, you know, he was at that stranger danger age, you know, very attached. He not spend a night away from me, you know, so as chaotic as my interior world and the things I was doing, like I was still, you know, functioning in that way. And, um, and so he's running to, he's terrified and the house is full of people and he runs to me for comfort. And my hands are handcuffed behind my back. So I can't comfort. Him. It still chokes me up, you know, all these years later. And, you know, in that moment, I'm just saying, it's okay. These are friends, right? Just to make him, you know, and I watch as two strangers put him in, you know, the back of a sedan and drive away. And it was like, in that moment, everything split. I was like, oh, this, you know, it was just horrible. I was taken out, put in a police car. At this point, the cul-de-sac is full of sheriff's cars. The neighbors are watching and I'm taken away and taken to jail. And the whole time, you know, I was crying and I was like, where are they taking my son? What's going to happen to him? And as I was walking into jail to the booking area, the sheriff's deputy, and I remember this moment, he stopped and he said, you will never see your son again. You should not be anyone's mother. And in that moment, like I believed him, Yeah. you know, I just like kind of hung my head and I was like, you're right. You know, like I, and so, you know, the redemption piece, like I really just believed at that point, sorry, I still get emotional about it, even though I've written it and (laughs) lived it. But in that moment, I just really believed I had completely failed at life, like imploded my life, imploded my children's life. Like, you know, this moment is their future college essay application moment. And it's like, you know, like, it's not what I wanted for them. The day my life was ruined. Right. Like I wanted them to have that perfect life that I didn't have growing up. And I just, you know, like overachieved in failure, you know? And so I really, in that moment thought, you know, redemption is for people who are good. And I'm just 100% bad. And P.S. you were being told that by for the people who were arresting you, right? Yeah, that didn't. But it was like, <laughs> yeah, I had some confirmation bias there. <laughs> I'm talking to Laura Love Harden. She is the author of the new memoir, The Many Lives of Mama Love. We'll be right back. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses. First two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby's skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist-approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we say? say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. 
Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different and fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E, lumen.me, and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. Amy, when I'm dehydrated, I get headaches. I get cranky and I don't feel good in general. Also, I am dehydrated a lot of the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> because being good with the water bottle is one thing, but getting that sodium and potassium with the fluids, turns out that is the key to saying optimally hydrated. So whether you're looking to hydrate during your workout, while traveling, or at the end of a long night, Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes have got you covered with over 65 trace minerals, seven essential vitamins, and coconut water powder. Crisp and refreshing without any sugar, this is hydration powered by Sports Research. Each box has 16 little stick packs that you can take on the go, whether you're headed to an exercise class, a night out with friends, or a podcasting conference. And did we mention they come in delicious flavors from raspberry lemonade to cherry pomegranate? Stay hydrated with Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes. Visit sportsresearch.com and use the code WHATFRESH at checkout for 50% off your purchase of Hydrate. That's S-P-O-R-T-S-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H dot com, sportsresearch.com, and use code WHATFRESH for 50% off your Hydrate Electrolytes order. So, Laura, you... There's so many things in this book that are outside my own experience and so many things that feel deeply relevant to me. Like, oh, I get that. I understand that. And something that was very revelatory for me, moving into the part of the book where you're in prison, is that prison, you say, if you look at a list of the red flags for domestic violence, you will find this jail's operating manual, the jail you're in. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Yeah, I mean, it is, you know, Jails and prisons were designed for men originally. Like women, especially in the jail system, you know, they've had a 750% increase in incarceration rates for women over the last three decades. 80% of women in jail are mothers. But the, you know, you have men who are controlling your daily schedule, who you have access to, you know, you're separated from family and friends. They have complete 100% power. Like it is a really, you have a group of women who are all deeply traumatized in some way. And Many of the women I was in jail with weren't that much older than my oldest son, at, who was 17 at the time. Oh. You know, they, like so young, it, it would break your heart and they'd been in and out. And the reasons women go to jail often are interpersonal reasons. You know, it's from the men they're with, you know, not, you know, everyone's making, you know, we all had our share of combined poor life choices in there, but women are in jail for very different reasons. And their experience of jail is very different than men's. And the guards, you know, would abuse that power. And there's, you know, a lot of concerning behavior that went on with the guards trading, you know, like food is an amazing commodity in jail, because you're starving, and there's no great food. And, you know, when I was first there, I would see the guards, you know, they're doing their checks at night, and I'd watch them go into a locked room, 
And I was like, do I smell McDonald's or am I hallucinating? You know, and so there were some kind of trading going on in this sort of uneven power dynamic, which I talk about in the book. And yeah, it wasn't a great place. And and a tough place to get clean, to get well. I never realized before reading this book just how many (laughs) drugs there managed to be in prison that you, if you want to continue using, you can probably figure out how to do that. It's harder not to to use than to use. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there are more drugs in behind bars than I'd ever seen in my life anywhere, you know, and I went to UCSC for college, right? (laughs) (laughs) So... So yeah, it's really hard, you know, if you don't, if that is your coping mechanism with difficulties in life, and you're in this really difficult situation, and facing potential, you know, long term prison sentences, or, you know, separation, a lot of, you know, like I said, 80% of the women in jail are mothers with minor children, and everyone was going through that separation, you know, like I spent Mother's Day in jail, not, you know, like probably the saddest day in the world is Mother's Day in jail. You talk in the book about the first time that you talked to one of your teenage children on the phone after you're in prison, and you didn't even get to see this kid before you left. And it's such a imperfect, you know, constricted sort of conversation. It's very, it must be very painful to try to communicate with them. Yeah, it's really, it was so painful. I mean, the only good thing about jail, if you're an introvert, is like, there's nothing incoming that you don't want. Like there's no phone calls you have to answer, but to call out, you know, you're, you're calling collect and, you know, calling your teenagers and just being like, I'm sorry. And there's no, you know, for many months until I went over to the minimum security where I could see them, you know, I didn't see them. I could only have these conversations over a staticky, you know, jail phone for a few minutes. And what can you say in that except I'm sorry, you know, which is so inadequate. There's no, and all your calls are also recorded and listened to by the jail. And it's just, you know, it's hard to talk to a teenager on the phone anyway, but. And then your youngest son is almost four, I think you said when it happened. So how do you even begin to communicate? You can't really like, so hi, how was your day? It doesn't work with any four-year-old, let alone when you're in prison. Yeah, that was really hard. I was able to, because he doesn't understand. He just thinks, you know, you've left him, you know, like it's, and that's so painful for him and painful to try and navigate as a parent, right? Like, And how do you explain, you know, when he would come visit me when I was in minimum security, you know, they would bring him once a week to visit me, child protective services. And he would bring in like his bathing suit or shoes. He was trying to leave stuff, you know, and kept wanting to stay there with me. And so it was like that, you know, not as, as violent and painful as that arrest separation, but it was the most painful thing week after week because I had to tell him, I love you. I want to be with you, but you can't stay here. And he's like, no, I want to live with you here. You know, it's like. Right. And so when you first get to prison, there's just this, you're just completely despondent that there's no hope. And why would you feel like there's hope? You're being literally told there's no hope. There's no hope for you. Right. Right. You're done. Yeah. That's where you begin. And that's certainly, I can identify with that. How did you start to move past that? Yeah. You know, that's probably the darkest moment in my life where I just thought be better for my children I know this is supposed to be funny, but you know, it's okay. It's not warning. This is about to not be funny, but you know, it was this moment where I thought it'd be better for my children to have a mother who isn't alive than to have a mother who's in prison for their life. You know, like I was just in this place where I didn't have that sort of inner spark or inner willpower. Like I thought there's no way I can get through what's in, in front of me. And so I just really believe, luckily, you know, it was 
one night and I failed at that too, you know, I was spectacularly failing in life at that time. You know, after that, it was just a very painful one baby step at a time for, and a whole lot of shame for over a decade, honestly. Like it wasn't like, you know, I was frantically trying to meet the requirements to get my son back because if I didn't complete all of the CPS requirements in a year because of his age, I would lose my parental rights. Like, so I had this ticking clock where, what do you mean? I'm He'd be taken away from me forever. And I was also sentenced to a year in jail. So like reconciling those two things. Yeah, it's really impossible. I mean, it was possible, but it was. <laughs> right. But it wasn't easy. And they don't, that's interesting. They don't make it easy, right? So you have a year to get all these things done. And also you won't be able to get all these things done and too bad. Right. And sometimes, you know, if a child's a little bit older, you might have 18 months to get them back, but you're given a two-year sentence by the same county. You know, like the organization's within different counties don't really coordinate very well, you know, and they're at cross purposes. And it makes it really, really hard to, you know, when I was in jail, there was a mother and daughter who I was in jail with, they were both locked up and they would go in and out and had, you know, for a good part of their lives, the mother and the daughter. And, you know, and I remember they would get released. And then like a week later, they'd get arrested again, and be back in. And I was like, you know, that's so crazy. Why would you ever come back here once you get out of here? And there was two things. One, you know, they're like, this is actually kind of the best home we've had together. We get safe time together in here. But also, like, I didn't realize until I got out how easy it is to go back, like how the system and the barriers, especially for women, make it so easy to be put back in jail. Like the reentry system is so, so broken. And I had a master's degree and I had some family support and I had some you know, I had the privilege that comes with being a middle-class white woman from a suburb, right? And it was almost impossible doing everything right. Like I'm a, like, may not seem like it, but I'm a big rule follower, right? <laughs> <laughs> like I will read all the directions. I will follow the rules. And it was really like, the way I describe it is like, you know, walking on a high, like a tight rope in high heels in the wind. That's how like navigating probation and not going back to jail is, you know. And I guess maybe we're not really interested. I'm kind of moving over to your TED Talk. I'm going to link to it in the show notes because it's so good. But you talk about, you know, redemption and getting to have redemption. And we kind of think that we kind of let people be defined by the worst thing they ever did. I think is how you put it. And there's something in it that maybe we want it to be. Yeah. Walking on high heels and a tightrope in the wind. It should be really hard to earn your way out. But are we, you know, yeah. what are we doing when we make it that difficult? Yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting thing, like how, because I thought I'm in jail, I'm going to, you know, I was sentenced, I'm going to, you know, do the jail sentence I've been given, I'm going to pay the money back I need to pay, I'm going to follow all the rules of probation, and then I will be done paying. Like, that's what I have to do to pay. And what I found out is that, you know, you're never done paying, you know, sometimes generations are paying for that worst thing you've done. You know, and that's what I didn't want, but that's the truth of it. That's the broken part of it. And, you know, and it's like we want rehabilitation, but do we want rehabilitation if it lives next door to us? Do we want rehabilitation or do we rehabilitation, but still, you know, know your place and know your limits? You know, it's a really interesting conversation, I think. I'm talking to Laura Love Harden. Her new book is The Many Lives of Mama Love. And we'll be right back. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. So we agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used hero bread. It 
adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty-calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber, while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. Margaret, it's an exciting news day. An exciting news day indeed, Amy. A few years ago, we launched our first spinoff podcast, Toddler Purgatory, hosted by the hilarious Blair Brooks and Molly Lloyd. And guess what? Now, Blair and Molly are back with their all-new podcast, Unsticking It. You know Blair and Molly as two busy moms and actors, and somewhere between potty training and the pandemic, they both felt like they lost their creative kaboom. In their new podcast, Unsticking It, they are going to talk about how all of us can get back to what lights us up after motherhood. Amy, I need this. Me too. And Blair and Molly will be talking to fellow imaginative minds. We're talking actors, artists, and creators of all kinds about how we can all unstick ourselves from whatever muck we're stuck in. Follow, subscribe, and listen to Unsticking It wherever you get your podcasts. That's Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life stucks. I want to keep talking about this idea of redemption because you said something in this TED Talk that really spoke to me. You said, I believe that people should pay for their crimes and then I believe that we should let them. That's the part that's missing, isn't it? Yeah, that's the part. I mean, I absolutely, you know, I was guilty and I should have paid for my crimes and I did and I think people should, but I think we have to let them at some point and we have to let ourselves. Like for me, you know, it really was, part of it was like, are people going to forgive me? Are my children going to forgive me? Is my community going to forgive me? But ultimately for me, it was like, am I going to be able to forgive myself? That was really the hardest thing. Am I going to be able to stop judging myself? And how did you do that? Let's talk about that. Oh, it took way too long. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's still a work in progress. Someone talked about my subtitle, like it's a memoir of lying, stealing, writing, and healing. I was like, oh yeah, I'm totally healed, totally cured. Good. All good now. But it is, you know, shame is a really isolating emotion, you know, and like I've, you know, when you talk about mom guilt and mom shame, like I've had it in various ways and like, oh, I'm not doing the organic baby food and look, I'm, you know, giving my kid nuggets and you're giving them organic broccoli, you know, like all of that raising children, but like mom shame, going to jail, being called the neighbor from hell in the newspaper, you know, publicly humiliating your teenagers, you know, all of those things. It was really hard to get over it. And what I did is, you know, when I got out and completed probation, I mean, you know, I started working for a literary agency and I was very good adjacent, right? Like I was working with all these amazing people like Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama and Brian Stevenson and, and Stanford professors. And I was like, but the whole time I was keeping a secret, right? So I used to keep a secret about my drug use, but now I was keeping a secret about my incarceration. And I was so afraid that people would find out this worst thing I've done and this worst part, you know, time of my life. 
And so I was hiding. It was very isolating. Like, how do you, you know, it's hard to make new friends as an adult woman sometimes, but I can even make friends really post jail because, you know, like we're going to be friends, but I'm not going to tell you about my past. So I'm going to keep my distance, but then I feel guilty. You know, like it's a really isolating emotion. And I just was so ashamed. I was just like, how did I become this person? And I want to be, you know, I had to prove to myself that I was more good than bad, right? Like that's part of it too. But even think, you know, my Caden, you know, I did get him back not to give the book away, but uh, but. (laughs) happy ending. Yeah, Yeah, I survived. But, you know, like I remember he's in first grade, right? So this is a year after jail, first grade, new school, you know, I'm pe- you know, back to school night, you know, meeting me. It's not the first thing you're going to think like, oh, that, you know, she, that's a convicted felon right there. But, you know, there's this moment where you meet new moms are like, oh, you know, Joey really wants to play with Caden. Can we do a play date? And there's this panic because I'm like, you probably like, you don't know my whole past. And if you did, you probably wouldn't want your, for whatever judgment, right or wrong, like it's fair, but you wouldn't want your child to have a play date at my house. And so I, you know, it's like a really weird thing to navigate because it's not like you're meet someone you're like, Oh, hi, guess what? Here's the worst thing about me. (laughs) You know, like it was, so it was really isolating for a long time to not, you know, and I think, and I said that in the Ted talk, like, like shame really multiplies in isolation. And that was true for me. And then it starts to heal in community. You know, and I think in owning your story, it starts to heal too. So that was it. I was going to say, because it's a big step from like, I don't want anybody to know this to here's a memoir of my life. Yeah. You work as a collaborative writer. Can you explain what that is for people who don't know? Yeah. So I started working, you know, when I was post jail, I answered a Craigslist ad and started working at a literary agency part time, five hours a week, you know, and I was just sort of desperate to start provide, you know, rebuilding my life. And it was a literary agent who worked with Desmond Tutu. And I was like, oh, this is a fake ad. You know, I didn't believe that. So I started working in a literary agency. And, you know, I had an MFA in creative writing. And that's really what I always loved to do. But when I had kids, I was like, I can't, there's no money. I can't support our family with that hobby at the time. So I started working at this agency. The man who hired me, Doug Abrams, found out about my past and kept me there. But I was keeping it a secret from all these authors. And I started ghostwriting and actually started ghostwriting in jail, writing letters for the other women to get them like put into treatment instead of prison or get a pass for high school graduation or a funeral, right? Or some big event, you can get like a two hour pass. And so I would you know, they would talk to me and then I would write as them and everybody I wrote for got the passes. And then I tried to write for myself to my oldest son, high school graduation while I was in jail, my first child graduating high school and my pass got denied. So later the judge said, I did that so that you would never miss another one of your children's graduations. And I haven't, but you know, it still would have been nice to go, but, (laughs) but so I started, you know, I've always found it easier to be other people than me, you know? And so as a collaborative writer is like a ghostwriter. So I was working with the authors we represented. I was helping them write their books, right? So working with all these amazing people hidden in the acknowledgements of the books in the back, you know, or maybe one I was on the cover, you know, with, and just keeping the secret from them. And so afraid that my past was going to hurt the reputation of the agency I was working at, you know, just really living in a lot of fear um, and shame and, but, and still, you know, still pretending in many ways, like I, you know, I'm very good at being other people, right? So, so event, you know, I started telling a few authors. There's one author, uh, Brian Stevenson, who wrote a book called Just Mercy, who's amazing. He was the first author I uh, we told because he had asked me to work on a book with a man who had been on death row in Alabama for 30 years for a crime he didn't commit. 
this man, Anthony Ray Hinton. And so we, I was in Alabama and we're at breakfast and Doug's like, Laura, tell Brian about your past. And I was like, with my eggs, like, Oh, this is my biggest fear, you know? And I told him, of course, like all the people we're working with are not super judgy people. The Dalai Lama is not going to be judgy, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Brian Stevenson, right. definitely. Or Brian Stevenson, right, right. That's what I was thinking. Like these perfect people put in your path. Yeah. And Brian was like, oh, that's so great. That'll really help you working on this book with Mr. Hinton. And so that was a moment I was like, oh, you know, and then the way publishing, selling books, you sell a book proposal to editors in New York, right? And so I remember listening to those sort of meetings, the editors who wanted to acquire this book, The Sun Does Shine. And hearing Doug go, oh, I have the perfect collaborative writer working with him. You know, do you know how hard it is to find an MFA who's been incarcerated? It's the perfect writer. And these are editors I've worked with for years in business, right? And they were like, oh, I didn't know that about Laura. That's so great. Because it was going to, you know, like it became a selling point. And I was like, oh, this is shaking my whole worldview. But it was really when I did that TED Talk and I just said, here's the thing I've been afraid of everyone Googling and finding out. And when I just said it, I had such like a weight lift off of me. Like I felt lighter and freer. And I was like, okay, that's when I decided to do the book, you know, and the book, it was really hard because this is my 13th book I've written. And my first book is me. Wow. Wow. So, you know, 12 of those other books were by men. Right. So I was like, what is my voice? Like, I don't know my voice on the page. I don't know how, who, you know, so it was, uh, I had a few false starts, but, but I'm glad I, I did it. You know, I let all my children read it, which is interesting, you know, before it went to press to make sure they're okay with, with me putting it all out there. Like, I, <laughs> yeah, because it's brave. I mean, memoir, telling your story is going to help so many people. But of course, you're bringing your loved ones along with you as you're telling the story. I know what that's like, right? To be like, are you okay with this? Because we're going to do this together. Yeah. And it's been optioned for a TV series. So I had to ask them that. I was like, are you okay with that too? Because, you know, it'll be like a dark comedy. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, we've really gone there in this conversation, Laura, and I really appreciate it. But I want everybody to know, like this book, it's beautifully written. It's incredibly compelling. It's incredibly moving. There are parts that are hilarious and funny. Like there's a part where one woman is taken out of prison to the hospital because she's having labor pains. And then immediately everybody runs to the phones to call their drug dealers. And it's like, woo, party, because we have somebody on the outside. Just there's such crazy situations. Well, well, she actually faked labor pains so we could get cute paramedics in there because everyone was bored is really like how the plan started just to pass a Wednesday. You know, time in jail runs really, really slowly. Yeah. Like now my days feel like they go so fast, but there's something weird with time when you're in jail or locked up where it is like the days are so long. So, so long. So we needed to see some paramedics one day. That's just (laughs) harmless fun. (laughs) So the book, I mean, the book is a true journey, but there's also, there's hope, there's redemption, there's all of that on every page. And, And what do you hope people reading it might take away? I mean, look, I think everyone has, you know, maybe not to the level of things I've done, but everybody has something they're ashamed of or a time in their life or they feel isolated. So I'm hoping... You know, to some people, I'm a cautionary tale, right? So like for moms, it's like, well, however bad a day you're having, you haven't done as bad as this. But I do hope that people, you know, I wasted a good over a decade not owning my own story and not and living in shame and living in isolation and not getting the joy of connection that I have now, you know, or wishing, you know, I spent a lot of time wishing for a better past, you know, trying to rewrite the past. Mm. And that is a big time waster. 
you know. So I hope it resonates for people who've never been to jail, never struggled with addiction. But I think, you know, there's a lot of people who struggle with addiction and there's a lot of people who love someone who struggles with addiction. So I think it sheds a little light on that. And, you know, I hope people learn the language of asking for help. I hope I'm a cautionary tale of not asking for help when you can, you know. I've been talking to Laura Love Harden, The Many Lives of Mama Love, a memoir of lying, stealing, writing, and healing is her brand new book. And I'm going to put the link in the show notes to all the places you can buy the book. But Laura, tell our listeners where they might be able to find you on the internet. So I have my website, lauraloveharden.com. I'm on Instagram at lauraloveharden. I also have a just launched a nonprofit called the gemmaproject.org. And that's to help incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women. So I'm hoping that's what the book does also because 80% of them are moms and they they need our love and support to get through. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. I'll put that the link to that, of course, in the show notes and well, everything that you mentioned. Laura, thanks for talking to me today. Thank you so much. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.